Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit Goyal. As we wrap up our high-yield heart failure series, we are extremely proud to bring to you today's episode. No discussion on heart failure is fully complete without discussing the role of palliative care in the management of a heart failure patient. In today's episode, we discuss all things palliative medicine in heart failure with somebody who taught me a lot about palliative medicine, none other than Dr. Rob Razak, Clinical Director of Palliative Care at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. Joining us for today's conversation is a close friend, Dr. Arsalan Darakshan, Assistant Program Director at Case Western Internal Medicine Residency Program and the head of the Global Health Pathway, as well as co-host of the Clinical Problem Solvers. Before we begin, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert palliative nerds. Also, as you enjoyed this episode, I'll apologize in advance because occasionally you can hear the footsteps as my wife runs after my son. For anyone with a family, you know that the chaos of children is what adds the greatest joy to life. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Hey, Cardio Nerds, Amit here. I am very excited to record this very special episode on the role of palliative care in the management of heart failure patients as part of our Heart Failure Awareness Week series. Joining me is Dr. Arsalan Darakshan, who for fans of MedEd Podcast does not need any introduction whatsoever. He is the famed co-host of Clinical Problem Solvers. Now, Arsalan went to medical school in the College of Georgia. He attended residency at the Johns Hopkins Hospital Osler Training Program and is now internal medicine faculty at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center and director of the Global Health Track. I had the honor of working with Arsalan last year when I was his chief resident on the Barker firm and watching Arsalan grow into the physician and teacher and the person he is today has to be one of the most special honors of my life. Oh man, how do I even start talking after that intro? <laughs> Thank you so much, Amit. This is uh, such a privilege to be on Cardio Nerds. I'm a huge, huge fan and I'm so excited to hear more of you guys. You guys are just absolutely crushing the game. Um, I have the distinct privilege of introducing Dr. Rob Razak, who went to medical school at Bangladesh Medical College and internal medicine residency at St. Joseph's Regional Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey. He worked initially as a hospitalist at Cedar sinai and he was grandfathered into palliative care. He moved to Maryland to work at Johns Hopkins, where he practiced for four and a half years. He is now a clinical associate professor and clinical director of palliative care at University Hospital Cleveland Medical Center. And I absolutely love seeing him in the hospital. He, <laughs> he makes my day every time. He's also a devoted husband, dedicated father, and a stand-up comedian. And right before this interview, he was practicing Taekwondo with his daughter. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been such a, a pleasure uh, seeing you guys grow, because I think when I first met Ahmed, he was an intern. And I still remember Arsalan when you were an intern too. And it's such a <laughs> say no more. Rob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been so fun to see the uh, 
amazing work you've both done, uh, the impact you've made on patients as well as uh, the teaching you've 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 brought to Hopkins and and now to the uh, social media. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Rob. You know, actually, before we get started, I just want to thank you for not recounting stories of us as interns. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then also, I was wondering, when we were making this intro for you, I didn't realize that you had gone from the private practice world to the academic world at Johns Hopkins, yes. where you had just tremendous impact. Um, and I'm wondering, what uh, what were the motivators for making that jump? Yeah, so um, when I was when I moved to California... I, uh, shortly afterwards, I ruptured my Achilles and twice actually back to back. So I was sitting down and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this was probably my, uh, second or third year out of, in practice. I just want to say that, um, Reza and Robbie of Clinical Problem Solvers are sitting somewhere making a schema for <laughs> bilateral Achilles <laughs> rupture. Because <laughs> I'm sure there is one to be made. Were you on a quinolone? <laughs> I was not. I didn't have any risk factors. I, I just okay. did a stretch. Uh, so, and I got to sort of think back about what, what were the things that brought me joy and, uh, where I saw myself in the world. And, and shortly after that, I started teaching uh, UCLA med students in clinical skills and then worked with a lot of the med students um, where they'd rotate with me at Cedars-Sinai. And that was so so much fun. And then afterwards, when we were moving back to the East Coast, I had this opportunity at Johns Hopkins to work with the godfather, Tom Smith. Mm. And, um, and he took a chance on me mm. and uh, really opened up my world. Well, we're both glad that he did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You know, I'm um, very glad you switched over to, to academia, Rob, because you're, you're phenomenal. And, you know, many generations of learners are, are grateful for this. And I'm very excited to learn from you um, from this episode for you to share with us the role of palliative care in heart failure. Um, and I want to preface our discussion by acknowledging how big of a deal heart failure is. You know, its global impact, both epidemiologically and financially, is is absolutely astronomical, and it continues to grow. Exact numbers vary, but around 23 million suffer from heart failure worldwide, approximately 6 million in the U.S. alone. The mortality estimates are disappointing. 50% of people diagnosed with heart failure will die within five years of diagnosis, and nearly 40% will die within a year of their first hospitalization. Despite some optimism from several advances in heart failure management, the realities of these numbers are truly sobering. And despite all this, engagement with palliative care is lagging. Compared to patients with cancer, heart failure patients enroll with hospice care much less often and later in the disease course. Rob, why do you think this is the case? So I think I think the reason for that is, first of all, a lot of the data in palliative care stemmed out of oncology. Uh, and so there, a lot of the larger trials were essentially oncology. Uh, and then around 2014-ish, Dr. Sidebottom um, came out with a study on acute heart failure looking at usual care versus specialty multidisciplinary palliative care um, and showed impact on quality of life as well as symptoms. And so I think that sort of set the stage for palliative care and heart failure. And also... You know, I think conceptually, heart failure is one of those chronic medical conditions that has a natural history and a course where we see patients that have an acute decompensated stage, like, you know, you may see for COPD and other chronic medical conditions. But the intercurrent periods, they seem generally well and, and relatively asymptomatic, whereas cancer 
the word cancer itself engenders a perceived prognosis that is different. But I think there is a chasm between our perceived notion of the prognosis of heart failure because it has these intercurrent periods of wellness yeah. mm-hmm. and, and the actual prognosis that Arsalan talked about so well. So I think, I think that at least for me as a practitioner, I probably don't realize the prognosis sometimes because people seem, you know, I can get them better when they mm-hmm. first come in with their decompensated stage. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I, I recommend to, uh, doctors and nurse practitioners and other providers on a regular basis is to ask themselves the surprise question of, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next year? Hmm. Or would you be surprised if they died in the next six months, right? And if you wouldn't, then if you wouldn't be surprised that they would die in the next six months, they'd probably meet criteria for hospice, right? And if you think that they wouldn't be surprised if they died in the next year, then um, historically, they would they'd be good candidates for pal care. I like that question because I think it really does force you to think about who your patient is and framing their next year in the context of their past year, which I think is probably a nice way of thinking about what the trajectory of an individual patient may be like. Yeah, I think the other thing about this is quite often uh, many clinicians, they when you ask them about prognosis, they're hesitant to share that with you. And often it's because they don't want to give up on, on patients. It's well-intentioned. And so if you reframe it as, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next year, it's it's less difficult for a lot of clinicians uh, to answer yes or no. In, in Rome, when you're consulted on patients with in-stage heart failure, how do you meet the patient where they're at? How do you set the stage to have these discussions? Because I think it's, it's difficult, you know, as, as providers and clinicians, we, we want to always treat and prolong life and prolong the quality of life. And, and sometimes we don't easily convert that into being let's just focus on symptoms, let's focus on quality of care. We're looking to prolong longevity. So how do you set the stage for these discussions? So uh, I actually like what you said. I, I think the issue is, I think when we see patients, the people that we care for, I think for, the most important thing for us to recognize is that they're a human being, right? And they're not just someone with a disease. They're a person with goals and objectives and and joys and um, and figuring out what they want, what they what they hope for, what their main goals are, what quality of life would be okay with them, what quality of life would not be okay. Um, I think it's really important for not just palliative care specialists to do, but oncologists, cardiologists, you name it, and and that's really primary palliative care. You know, where you as a clinician hopefully will have basic skills on how to talk about goals of care, how to talk about code status, how, how to talk about what people value and what they hope for. Talk how to talk about what people are concerned about. No, I, I really like I, I like that. I think conceptually it, it it's important to frame it as as that because you can keep a body alive, right? We can we can oxygenate and mechanically support people, but at what point, like you know, there there is extremes to that. Mm-hmm. At what point would your quality of life not be something you would want to live with? Mm-hmm. And I think teasing that out in a very patient-centered way is at the at, at the core of what we're, we're talking about here. Yeah, I like that framework because I think you know we as clinicians certainly have our prime directives and goals based on guideline-directed medical therapy, 
but asking the patients what their goals and value systems are and how we fit together can be very fulfilling for both parties involved. Yeah. And it's really important for them to get this information, to, to tease this information out when they understand what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. So Ariadne Labs, they, they have this communication checklist, they see on this conversation guide. And in there, they ask questions like, uh, how do you like to receive medical information? Mm-hmm. And what's your understanding of your situation? Right. And then, and if they tell you something and they're not fully informed, then you can fill in the gap. And when you fill in the gap, my recommendation is actually start broad. And because sometimes we provide so much detail to people mm-hmm. that they get overwhelmed, you know, take a 10,000 foot view. Sure. Right. Take a step back and, and talk about the big picture. So see, yeah. assessing what they want out of the conversation and while sharing information, also kind of exploring what they understand of their situation and their yeah. illness. And asking permission to share, would it be okay for me to share what I what I understand? Now, you know, like you also made the distinction between primary special uh, palliative care and specialty palliative care. Yes. Primary palliative care being palliative care provided by the primary clinical providers, be yeah. it a primary care doctor, mm-hmm. a hospitalist, with a heart failure specialist, cardiologist, etc. And specialty palliative care being where you invite the services of a palliative, a trained palliative care specialist to help assist in management. Now, getting palliative care involved at the very end stages when they're in shock and we're discussing salvage therapies like durable ventricular assist devices mm-hmm. or heart transplant is, I think, a no-brainer. And, and we do that, I think, reasonably well. In fact, it's sort of a requirement by the Joint Commission and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to have an inclusion of specialty palliative care for a VAT program certification yeah. in the first place. That was huge. <laughs> Is that right? That was a huge moment back in 2014. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't realize there was the background to that story. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think I think once you change payment, you can change attitudes. Yeah, so I, I, I believe that. I, yeah. I, think, I think on a national scale, mm-hmm. there was a change then. And, and prior to that, there are many, there are many folks who are very palliative care friendly. Right. Right. But I think it changed the ballgame um, for, for palliative care and heart failure. And, and it changed the ballgame within the context of the most end stage heart failure variants. But mm-hmm. heart failure is a chronic disease with several hinge points. You know, mm-hmm. you have the onset of the risk factors, the first diagnosis, the first admission, and many more. Beyond the, the crash and burn scenarios, uh, when we're thinking about LVADs and transplants, when, in your opinion, is the right time for us to include specialty palliative care? And what does it really have to offer to heart failure patient population? Yeah, so, I mean, they've looked at uh, what happens when you when you consult palliative care in acute heart failure, looking at quality of life and things of that nature. I think there's no full consensus on what that should look like, right? And so, as opposed to oncology, you know, where... ASCO, they came out with, with guidelines for anyone w- who's diagnosed within eight weeks of diagnosis of cancer who's seriously ill, they should have palliative care counsel. Mm. Or they should have palliative care. And knowing that we're never going to be able to meet the, meet the needs of those patients mm-hmm. with specialty palliative care, therefore, primary palliative care should be done, right? And so there's nothing like that yet in heart failure, but I think I'm sure uh, ACC and other, other groups are, are working on some of this. But in general, I think that's a prize question of one-year prognosis is one uh, with patients with class 3, class 4 heart failure. So that's essentially what people go to. And then beyond that, depending on your organization you work with, the amount of palliative care providers you have, a lot of the other things are, are different. 
So its specialty palliative care clearly has an important role in many time points within heart failure spectrum, but because the resources are limited, we need to empower the primary practitioners taking care of heart failure patients to engage more with the patients in these in, in this arena. Yes, yes, certainly. So, I mean, when we were at Hopkins, the heart failure clinic, one thing I worked on was working with the nurse practitioners in clinic, mm-hmm. uh, teaching them primary palliative care skills uh, and, and getting a sense of how comfortable they were with a lot of the language and with the advanced care planning, as well as symptom management, you know, such as using low-dose opiates in patients with dyspnea and heart failure. You know, it's, it can be helpful. To uh, shift gears a little bit, sure. you know, Rob, the, the traditional framework that I've seen is palliative care versus curative paradigm. Uh, it's an all or none. It's been viewed as being mutually exclusive for a long time, where the patient has to choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. Can you clarify the difference between palliative versus hospice care and how a patient should receive palliative and, and, and whether or not patients can receive palliative and curative care simultaneously. Yeah. So when I, when I think of palliative care, I think of, you know, people who are seriously ill, right? And what does that mean? That means people who have a higher risk for mortality and their quality of life is affected or there's a, some burden, some degree of burden on the caregivers, right? And so, whereas hospice is, is, it's more definitive. It's more where, you know, someone has a prognosis of six months or less mm-hmm. and they opt for comfort care where they want to avoid hospitalizations and procedures. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's, it's an agency. Mm-hmm. When I teach people about the difference, I think it's really important to, in terms of how you frame it. So, for example, when, when you're talking to someone about hospice, Quite often people say, oh, yeah, I think you'll benefit from hospice and here's what it is. Mm-hmm. And my recommendation is actually, instead of naming it, describe it first. And, and how do you describe hospice it, for the patients? So the way I describe it is there's there's a service that's available to you uh, for someone with, with a prognosis like yours, where we would not be surprised if you died in the next six months or less. And majority of this is done at home, where someone's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week by phone. And they can send a nurse over at least once a week, more depending on your need. And they can have home health aides and other other services available for you, like a chaplain, a social worker, sort of help you through this. And not only with you, but for your family. And it turns out when people like you have the service, people live better and longer with it than without it. And quite often I hear, oh my God, that's exactly what I want. I really like this approach mm-hmm. because the words palliative care and hospice can be so emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of misconceptions that go along with these terms. And, and a lot of our patients have had an experience with palliative or hospice care from a loved one. And, and maybe that interaction was, was good or not good. And, and I think describing it rather than naming it yeah. probably leaves them a little, a little bit more open to yeah. the concept. And then after, after describing it, then give it a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I that's like actually that. hospice. In, Rob, and, in, yeah. in, in some of the goals of care meetings that I've been in, in the room taking care of patients with you, yeah. something I've learned directly from you is that people who qualify for hospice care, who choose to enroll <laughs> in it, actually live longer than people yeah. who would qualify for it and who don't choose choose it. Yeah. And when I describe it that way, I think it, it relieves patients and their families of of some guilt that that may be associated with 
maybe, you know, enrolling in something that could potentially shorten life expectancy, but to tell them that, you know, in fact, it, it can actually lengthen their, their life expectancy. Yeah. And, and I've, I've seen shifts in the direction of the conversation when, when you share with them that fact. Yeah. Rob, I think it might be helpful for some of the uh, audience. Maybe you want to role play on how you would start a discussion. Sure. You know, let's say I'm, I'm a patient who has end-stage heart failure and you've been consulted to, to come by. What, what would a conversation look like to the patient? So it really depends on what the context is. So, for example, if there is uh, someone who's being evaluated for a, a VAD, mm-hmm. we actually have a checklist that we use. So it's okay. Keith Sweat's Mayo Clinic article that we use for evaluation. Mm-hmm. And some of that is sharing with them what to expect in terms of complications from a VAD. Um, things like hospitalization and uh, bleeding risk, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And then doing advanced care planning, uh, who can make decisions for them, who their power of attorney is, asking them about things like tube feeding and trach. Because you know, mm-hmm. some of these patients, it's difficult for them to get off the vent. Mm-hmm. And some of them may need trach. And if they need a trach, they may also need a peg, mm-hmm. right? Some of these patients develop end-stage renal disease sure. and they may need dialysis, right? And I mean, I think it's really important for people to recognize what they're getting themselves into, right? Those are possibilities of complications, but that doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then also sharing with them you know, prognosis with right. an LVAD versus not. You know, some of the data shows that patients who get an LVAD, they're likely going to live another two years, you know, mm-hmm. about 75% survive for another two years, and then it, it starts dropping after that. And there are some cases that live 10 years. And there aren't many, and it's important for them to figure out if that's something they're willing to go through. So for patients who are bad candidates, that's one of the conversations we have. Sure. And we also talk about symptoms, right? And, and you know, things like breathlessness and fatigue and nausea, vomiting and insomnia, constipation, those type of things. Anxiety, depression, sure. uh, their overall well-being, mm-hmm. those type of uh, symptoms, and then we'll figure out a way to help them through that, right? And, and so for me, I when patients are anxious, I um, I actually recommend using a hand fan. Mm. Simple, doesn't cost much, and it can actually help people with their breathlessness. So Irene Higginson is like the godmother of PALC in the UK, and she's done this study with patients with breathlessness, and they were either given usual care versus given uh, these breathlessness support group, which is essentially palliative care with a respiratory therapist. Um, and they were essentially given a hand fan and a little mantra to read when they get short of breath. Mm. Oh, interesting. Right. And they actually had greater mastery of their breathlessness. Another thing I talked to patients about is, so Ira Bayak, he, he wrote The Four Things That Matter Most. Mm. It's four conversations to have. And I remember mm. I had Hopkins. There was a patient I was evaluating for an LVAD and possible heart transplant who ended up not getting either and went home on hospice. Mm-hmm. But one of the conversations I had with him and his wife was uh, about the four things that matter most. And it was, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. And one thing I recommend is for patients to have these conversations and also for family members to have these conversations with other people. And it can be, it's a, it can be a very difficult time, but it, it can also be a time for healing. And so this one patient's wife emailed me about five months later and said, you know, Dr. Rob, 
thank you so much for this conversation. You may not remember me, but I, <laughs> I saw you about five months ago with my husband. And that was that conversation you had about the four things that matter most. That was the most important conversations we've ever had in our 15 years while we were going back and forth wow. to the hospital and seeing, seeing our doctors. And, and it turned out he didn't see his son for 20 years. And after that conversation, he went back home and had those conversations and was able to heal that relationship. And so his son was by his side for the last four months of his life. So it can be, I mean, these little things yeah. can be really powerful. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. That's wonderful. It's really simple. I mean, there's, there's nothing like these very intense moments in in a person's life that can give meaning to their entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and quite often we, as we take care of patients, we'll hear some people say, you know what? We're hoping for a miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what do you do then, right? Yeah. And so Rhonda Cooper... That reminds, reminds me of a patient me and Ursula took care of together oh. who had um, cervical cancer that progressed mm. yes. to a very end stage. And they were yeah. looking at Ayurvedic therapy and right. trying to get transferred to the third center. And yeah. it was a very challenging situation because they were looking for a miracle. And there was no rationale that we understood in our language mm-hmm. that could overcome the optimism of a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you do? Uh, so Rhonda Cooper and Tom Smith uh, and I think a couple other people wrote this article called the Amen Protocol. Mm-hmm. So affirming what they're saying, meet them where they are, and then educate them about the realities of the situation. And then N is for no matter what, really non-abandonment. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do this alone. We're here with you through this. And that can set the stage for a different conversation with them. In review, the AMEN protocol is? Affirming what they're saying. A for affirming. Meet them where they are. Meet them where they are, okay. E for education. E for education. And N for no matter what or non-abandonment. That's great. That's good. Hmm. Rob, on that note, you know, you took us through a conversation um, that you would have with with an LVAC candidate. Hmm. Let's say someone had non-revascularizable coronary disease. Mm -hmm. Schema cart failure, very low ejection fraction, very in stage with, with not a lot of therapeutic mm-hmm. options, advanced age, not an advanced therapy, advanced options for advanced therapy. How, what, what would that conversation look like? So first getting a sense of how they like to receive information. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about this, who else would you want in the room? Okay. Right. And then getting a sense of the understanding. And so asking them mm-hmm. what, the, what they know. And then telling them in, in broad terms. Mm-hmm. And then asking them again to repeat that to you sure. so that they can process this, right? And then getting a sense of um, if we had a sense of time or prognosis, that information you'd want to know, sure. right? Because majority of people do want to know about 10% or so don't, mm-hmm. right? And it, that's okay. Yeah. If they don't want to know, who can we share this information with, sure. right? And then, and this is in the Serious Illness Conversation Guide from the Harvard Program. But in that, what I also add is my favorite question in healthcare. Like, what brings you joy? Mm. Right? Because it's really mm. important to build rapport. Sure. And sometimes those can be actionable. And sometimes they become some of the goals. Right? And then after that, ask them about what are they hoping for? Mm-hmm. And then and keep digging. What else? What else? Sure. And, and explore more about what they want. And then asking about some of their fears and worries about the future of their health. 
or about some of the symptoms, mm. right? And then that way you can actually like focus on some of those symptoms, mm-hmm. right? And then after that, figure out what functions are so critical to them that they can't imagine living without. And when I, when I think of that, I think of like cognition, mm-hmm. mm. and and I think about ambulation and being able to eat on your own or being able to take care of personal hygiene mm. and being independent. Yeah. Right, so those are questions. That's very powerful, I, actually. Those are questions very I ask relevant to all my patients, patients now. Um, yeah. And then, what 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 are they willing to go through for the possibility of more time, maximal burdens, and finally um, asking them if they've spoken to their family about their goals and wishes. From there, you can talk about things like advanced care planning, right? And then also getting a sense of symptoms. Hmm. You know, tell tell us about pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, constipation, anxiety, depression appetite, those type of things. Your framework is, reminds me of a mnemonic that one of my residents, Cooper Lloyd, taught me. Um, spikes. Yeah. yeah. So everyone who's listening to this, please download the Vital Talk app. Mm. So there's a Vital Talk Tips app. I actually like that a lot. And I believe they have spikes in there. They're the one that created this. Okay. Uh, along with Remap and then Guide. Oh, that's very cool. Right. The Vital Talks app? Vital Talk Tips app. Okay. Yeah. And then they also have uh, VitalTalkConversations, I believe, .com. And, and he talks about very nuanced ways to talk. Tony Bach is like one of the masters of mm-hmm. communication. Incredible. Uh, it's really, really thoughtful. I think it's helpful to have these frameworks and structured ways of approaching these topics. So that's, yeah. that's very helpful. Yeah. And so, you know, what I recommend is using the Ariadne Lab uh, Serious Illness Conversation Guide, as well as some of these Vital Talk tips. Right. So using okay. spikes or remap, and I love remap. I live by it, and okay. and you know that's reframing, expecting emotion. So the thing is, if we don't, quite often we're not taught this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not taught about how to um, how to respond to emotion because like eighty percent of communication is nonverbal, mm. right? Mm. So when you share news with people, they can be upset or sad. Or address it, <laughs> right? Talk about the elephant in the room. Mm. And once you're able to talk about the emotions, you're, you'll be, everything would be so much more fluid and you build rapport. And it's really, I mean, people, people say, Oh my God, you know, we need to be more empathetic. Right. And it can be taught using these tools, using nurse statements, for example. Right. So it's incredible. So Rob, thank you so much for, for all these uh, teaching points. Out of respect for your time, what will your message for providers taking care of patients with heart failure be? So I think, I think number one, don't be afraid to have these conversations. And if you aren't experienced in this, you can always ask a palliative care provider who's near you to say, hey, by the way, I wanted to, would you be able to just see me do this? And then, and then get feedback, right? And if you're going to refer someone to palliative care, I think there's a way to do that because quite often what I hear people saying is, by the way, Rob, I was trying to refer a, a patient to you, but they didn't want to see you. They didn't want to see palliative care. I'm like, is there something on my face? Or you know, <laughs> uh, Did they see my picture? Oh, my God, they scared them, right? And and it turns out, I think a lot of it is framing. How, yeah. And so we're a consultative service. Mm-hmm. So when someone has a heart attack, does an internist say, you know what? Would it be okay if I got the cardiologist to see you? Because you've had a heart attack. Would that be okay? No, you don't. Right? You say something like, you've had a heart attack. We're going to get the specialist to 
I'll look into this and see if you need any procedures or what other meds you need, yada, yada, yada. Right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, with palliative care, one way you can say this is you've got a serious illness. You've got this advanced heart, heart failure. And what we want to do is get the specialist who, who can help you feel better and talk to you about what's really important to you. And it's full circle, like what you were saying earlier, you know, describe what you bring to the table as exactly. opposed to... And, and I, I want to get them involved. Yeah. yeah. And you'll see a big shift in terms of their acceptance of that of that visit. And I think there you can also direct them to getpalletocare.org. Lots of great resources there. That's awesome. You know, Robin, when I first asked you what made you shift from private practice to academic you said, well, you had time to think, and you were thinking what brought uh, joy to you. Yeah. But I think I speak for many people when I say that we are so glad that you made that jump because you've brought joy to so many other people. Um, and just the, the impact you had, at least when I was at Hopkins, was just tremendous. Your, mm-hmm. When you left, your loss was felt so deeply mm-hmm. among the medicine program that it was like we were losing our bigger brother, oh, our yeah. advisor, our mentee. And you know, you also thank you so much. That you know, so you much brought you did so much for team morale and team building. Oh, yeah, that you was helped, so fun. <laughs> you helped bring um, the ner- the the interns and the nurses together with the team building exercises, and together started a program where we had small groups of interns sit down and do reflection sessions, which I think did a lot. That was so powerful. It was incredible. Wow. I mean, I think to see these strong, brilliant, hardworking young doctors who usually didn't have space to talk about the the meaning of the patient care they were doing, just break up in tears and, and be thankful for the experience they were having and, and being able to process some of the loss that they were experiencing, mm-hmm. um, I think just added so much to their lives. And I think you've touched so many people, and I just want to play an example of the impact that you've had. Hi, my name is Amanda Mole, and I'm one of the medicine residents at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Robert Zock has actually been my medical and life mentor for six years now. He was not only the first person to introduce me to palliative medicine during my first year of medical school, but since then has really inspired my daily practice as a doctor, how I approach palliative care, and my future career. And I really got to learn all of this alongside his daily dose of humor and various accents. So to say he's played a special role in my life is truly an understatement, and I know he will continue to touch the lives of many patients and colleagues. Wow, that that was so special. Yeah, Amanda, I feel like I've known her since she was a baby. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and here's the thing: I think I've I've had the privilege to meet like incredibly smart people who are really passionate and wa- who want to make a difference in people's lives, and and just to be able to make a, di- a small dent in their lives. Uh, in a positive way, that's that's a huge win for me. So thank you so much for this. That, that was really touching. Thanks for being you, Rob. <laughs> Woo! And we'll we'll also post on our show pages uh, the upcoming venues for Rob's stand-up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Beep.